Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And today I'll be talking with Alberto Alemano. Alberto is the Jean Monnet Professor in EU Law at the École des Hauts Etudes Commerciales de Paris. Eh oui, ça c'est mon français, je parle bien aussi. And he's also the founder of the NGO, The Good Lobby. We talk about EU citizenship, but also the work done by Good Lobby and his book, Lobbying for Change. And now, with no further ado, I bring you Alberto Alemano. I'm here with Alberto Alemano. Alberto, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. And you've been lately on the uh, scopes of what the European Liberal Forum is doing. You had two uh, collaborations very recently, one of them for everyone that likes to follow democracy in Europe and how to be a European Union citizen. So let's start with that, because you introduced two concepts that I want you to go a little into them and to describe them a little better, which is political representability and political intelligibility. So let's start with that. Tell our listeners what does that mean for, for, for us and for them? Yeah, for many, many years, we heard that the European Union faces a, a democratic deficit that is very far away, that citizens are not very well represented. Yet, if you stop pondering about this, you realize that uh, in the European Union, citizens of Europe are directly represented by their own members of parliament. We elect them every five years. And indirectly, we are also represented by our governments who sit in the council and indirectly also in the commission. So my claim over time in my scholarship, in my activism, is that the European Union is not, doesn't really suffer of a democratic deficit, but it rather suffers of what I call an intelligibility deficit. It means that it's not very clear what the union does and how citizens can actually have a role and play a role in it. And this is probably where the misunderstanding emerges in our relationship with the union. At the end of the day, the European Union is us, is our governments, is our representatives taking decisions on our behalf, even though we feel it so far away, it is quite close to us. So let's stay with that. When you said that there's that intelligibility, do you think that this is just mainly a European Union problem not reaching to the citizens? Is there like middle levels, like uh, member states, ground level, like citizens? So how do you think those things communicate between them? Well, I don't think it's the European Union job to communicate about what it does. It might immediately appear or sound like propaganda. I think we really have to step back from such a perspective and ask ourselves a very basic question, which is what Europeans never do together, right? Europeans across Europe have been engaging into a lot of activities, right? We go study abroad, we receive students, we are travelers, we are students, we are tourists. We, we have been getting closer and closer. There's so much socioeconomic interdependence in Europe, but there's something we never do together, which is politics. Politics is still the realm of the nation state. So when major decisions are taken in Brussels by the European Union, we don't really understand how our national political governments and parties position themselves in Europe. And this lends itself to a lot of misunderstandings. I give you an example, which is very close to those who are listening to us. Think about how the liberal family and the European 
political liberal family has organized over time. In the old days, it was called ALDE. Now it's called Renew Europe. Well, you have a party uh, which is uh, called Ciudadanos, which is the Spanish Liberal Party, that over the last two years has been taking a very interesting stance by going a bit more to the center, even more to the right, by trying to cozy up with the Partido Popular in order to form a government. That's something that didn't really happen. It didn't really work in Spain. But at the same time, when Ciudadanos was going to the right, actually Ciudadanos, the very same party, was joining the Liberal Party and he was promoting itself as a very pro-European party by teaming up with Macron and with La République en Marche. If you're a Spanish citizen, do you really see the difference between the Ciudadanos positioning in Brussels and the one in Spain? It's very different, the positioning, but it's not intelligible to everybody. And you have many of those examples coming from all over Europe. This doesn't make it intelligible to the average citizen what is actually happening with his vote at the European level. But let me stay here for a little more, because the, co the common wisdom is that the European Union needs to reach out to, uh, his, to, to the members of this community, which is the citizen. So you have like calls for more communication, to have outlets where the European Union will talk with its uh, citizens. So you're not against that per se. Well, I think there is a major gap today uh, between, on the one hand, the realities of a Europe which is incredibly and unprecedentedly uh, interdependent. And on the other hand, uh, we have a political system which is everything but European. So there's a gap between the Europeanized life we live and the very nation state political system in which our reality has to be translated. So the question is how we can fill up such a gap? Whose job is the one to unpack this kind of the major matches that I'm describing to you? We can say that we need communication, no doubt. We need citizens' education, civic education, no doubt. But I think this Europeanization of the political process has to be performed by political parties and the political space. We need to aim at the creation of a European political space, which is not just the sum of national political parties that meet in Strasbourg, in Brussels, in the same European political party family, but rather they speak to their citizens by saying, in Europe, we are for a minimum revenue, a basic minimum revenue. In Europe, we are for embracing a green transition. In Europe, we are against plastics. In Europe, we are taking a given position. Unless national political parties, they open up to Europe by telling us what they stand for, the citizen will never understand what's in for her, what's in for him. Why should they take the time to actually vote for European elections? How those uh, voting will translate into the European political space? This is the big unanswered question today. Nobody wants to talk about, and most political leaders are actually quite uncomfortable to talk about their position in Europe. They want to be accountable only to the national electorate because that's how the electoral system works, right? You elect your MEPs at the national level, not at the European one. And let's continue with that because a lot of people present the solution, which is, and you also do it, the vo voters without borders and to have trans-European uh, lists for the European Parliament. We made a try, even if it wasn't very successful, to have a Spitzenkandidaten 
So let's go a little bit into that. What is needed to be done so that we can move in that direction? Over the last uh, 20 years or so, there have been many attempts by the European Union to Europeanize the political process. That means to ensure citizens, when they actually show up for the European elections, they will understand and realize that their, their, their ballot will actually define the political color of the next European Commission, notably the government of Europe. And the first attempt has been in 2014 to have what we call the Spitzenkandidaten. So basically to say that the political party in Europe that will obtain most of the vote, well, it will be leading the uh, European Commission to come. That's why Jean-Claude Juncker was the president in 2014, uh, because the European Popular Party, EPP, was the one that got most of the votes. However, in 2019, this reasoning didn't really work out. In particular, the Spitzenkandidaten was boycotted both by some pro-European uh, uh, or political parties like Renew Europe, but also by some others like uh, Fidesz or the League uh, in, in Italy. Obviously, the automaticity of the Spitzenkandidaten, the fact that they knew the party that obtains most of the votes should obtain the lead of the European Commission, uh, makes it virtually impossible for the other European political families to actually get uh, some control of, of, such a, of such a system. That's the reason why. Uh, many other individuals, including myself, over the last 20 years, have been arguing for the creation of transnational lists, or at least uh, some forms of Europeanizing the elections. The idea is very simple, and the best way to potentially operationalize this is to allow uh, national citizens to vote not only within their own national jurisdiction, their, let's say, Portuguese or Spanish or Italian MEPs, but also to vote for candidates for MEPs who will be presenting themselves mm -hmm. uh, all across Europe. If you think about it, today the European elections are not very European. We actually vote uh, in every single country on different dates based on uh, national electoral system. Uh, based on national programs, we vote for national parties and we vote for nationals of uh, our country, the country where we actually vote. So much for European politics. So the question is, how can we allow citizens to actually select representatives all across Europe based on one political program, based on uh, one uh, set of common, let's say, value propositions all across Europe. Well, this is an antidote to avoid the kind of democratic, def uh, democratic deficit and intelligibility I was referring to. So the current conversation in 2021 will be ahead of 2024, the next European elections, on how we can embrace a European electoral system that actually will force national political parties to Europeanize by coming together in coming up with European, pan-European programs, pan-European rosters, so a Portuguese citizen may actually run also in Germany, and a, Germany might, a German might run in Portugal and vice versa. But more importantly, how we can ensure that each European political party will come up with a, a program, meaning a value proposition, which is open to all European citizens. If that happens, obviously, 
the outcome of that election will have greater legitimacy because those citizens have been selected on the basis of a pan-European competitions based on pan-European ideas. This is exactly what is missing today in our current political process, which again is very ba based on the nation state as opposed to the uh, pan-European process. Uh, most of the challenges facing Europe today are pan-European. They transcend the national borders. So unless we have and allow an electoral competition based on pan-European solutions, Europe is going to get stuck uh, to status quo. This are, it's such great points that you are raising, Alberto, because an experience tells us that and the last European election um, in Portugal, as an example, but I'm sure this happened in other member states, the discussion was mostly an internal discussion. And there was, you know, a lot of good efforts from the media and also from uh, some of the candidates to try to bring it back to the European Union. But every time they did that, it was how the European Union can serve Portugal. And exactly as you say, it, it sure has to serve the people in the member states, but there are problems and there are, like you just said, topics that could be a trans-European topic that will fit in a trans-European list. So we have environment to solve, okay? There are solutions, liberal solutions, there are left solutions, there are right solutions. So I'm very happy that you brought that up to our listeners. Now, there is another uh, concept that you brought up in one of the events with the European Liberal Forum that I really wanted to ask you, what do you mean by counter-democracy? This looks a little subversive, mm -hmm. a little, <laughs> a little, you know, risque, but as you, of course, as you explained on the other event, I'm going to ask you to tell our, to our listeners now in the podcast, because this is also a great idea. Yeah, well, today, when we think about uh, uh, inequalities, uh, we often think about economic inequalities uh, without realizing uh, that the other side of the economic inequalities, the fact that the wealth is distributed unequally across society, also has uh, some major political inequalities implication. That basically means that today the voice that each of us has in the policy process, both at the local, national, European level, varies depending on the voice you actually have. And this is usually correlated to your political power, which is uh, correlated to the economic one. So the more, the more resources you have, the more influence probably you're going to have. So the issue we face uh, across Europe, but also in other regions of the world, is really a matter of access to power. We don't have the same opportunities to get the ear of the policymaker. We don't have the same opportunity to influence and to actually have some form of um, impact on decision making. This is deeply problematic because that means that the policy process that is charged to define policies that basically characterize and determine the opportunities in life for our family, for our kids, for everybody around us, will not be uh, the outcome of a inclusive policy process in which all interests, uh, not only the interest of those who loud, who are the most loud, I would say, are going to be heard uh, by the policymakers, but they should be uh, basically inclusive to all possible voices. Mm -hmm. So the question is how we can move away 
from a system in which we assume everybody has a say, everybody can actually talk to our political representatives, to our ministers, to our European Commissioner and MEPs, to a system which becomes much more proactive. And that's what I call substantive political equality, a system in which we no longer assume everybody has access, but we actually create proactively the conditions for everybody to get access to decision makers. And this requires power shifting reforms, reforms aim at uh, reshifting power away from the most powerful in our society, basically corporations organize interest to those who actually don't have the capacity to organize and to advocate for their interest. In a natural, we need to make sure everybody gets a seat at the table. At the moment, only few people and few actors and few interests have a seat at the table. And that's probably why behind much of the big questions, I think uh, uh, the world is facing today from climate change to the you know, excessive use of pesticide, uh, the extractive economies, uh, we really see a problem of excessive lobbying. Uh, so actors who actually gain from being so dominant uh, due to the fact that the other interests are not there. But uh, the question we should ask ourselves, and in particular our government should ask themselves, is how the world would look like if all the interests in society would be better represented and everybody would be able to get the ear of the policymakers and therefore the public policies would be more uh, a better reflection of you know, how composite, how pluralistic our society is. But tell us a little more than how it is to work on this very important need and, and objective, which is to have a more inclusive system. Uh, yes, thank you for giving me the chance to tell you a bit more about uh, the good lobby. Uh, after years of getting involved uh, into the policy process as a, as a pro bono advisor to civil society organizations and many years of research on European decision making, um, I realized that uh, uh, something had to be done when it comes to equalize access to power. And that's the reason why I set up a, a civic startup called The Good Lobby, whose mission is really to demystify and to democratize lobbying meant as a legitimate form of participation. So my argument that I develop in a book called Lobby for Change is basically to say that everybody should be able to lobby because if everybody does lobby, well, then lobby is no longer something negative. Uh, mm -hmm. And in reality, if you think about it, our policymakers, our governments today, they expect civil society to actually show up in order to share uh, data, information, feedback. So in a way, governments want to be lobbied more, not less, but they want it to be lobbied by everyone. And this is exactly the point we haven't really solved at the moment, because when governments open up, they usually meet the usual suspects. They don't meet and proactively look for those actors who usually are not able to organize themselves, who are not professionalized enough. That's a major problem of civil society in Europe, right? We are not uh, professionalized enough to counter, and that's why I often talk about counter-democracy or checks and balances or you know, counter-lobbies or good lobbies that can potentially offset the undue influence of the other, of the other interest. So what we have been doing over the past few years has been to enhance the advocacy capacity of civil society by providing trainings, 
two NGOs, from the big ones like Amnesty International, WWF, Transparency International, to the small one, including citizen movements, in order to ensure that everybody will have the chance to get access to the policymakers, provide information, influence the process by using the same repertoire, tools, and techniques used by big corporations. And this has led us to basically realize how structural and systemic is the difference between the power of those organized interests and the power of those who are not organized. And this is our mission today, increasing the advocacy capacity, but also making more responsible the lobbying done by corporations. So obviously now that we are all shifting away from a model in which only shareholders had to be satisfied by companies. We are moving towards a multi-stakeholder uh, company or corporation. Also, companies need to not only be responsible in relation to their uh, environmental emissions and social impact, but also become responsible when it comes to the political footprint of a company. In other words, they need to become more responsible when they do lobby, when they engage with the policy process, because at the end of the day, if they want to be sustainable, they need to take into account all stakeholders, not only uh, their own particular interest in shaping a new public policy. So this is what I often call corporate political responsibility. The fact that companies should not only become socially responsible, but they should become also politically responsible because their political power today is just too big, too large and often excessive. And in the long term, even companies themselves might be damaged if they are become mm -hmm. so dominant and the policies will only be reflecting their own interests and not those of all society. Those are great points. And this podcast in particular, the Liberal Europe podcast, we aim to empower people to take action. And the good lobby, it's a great place for people that are interested in what we're talking to go. You guys have campaigns, people can volunteer. You also have a podcast. You are uh, the host with uh, Fiorella Lavorna. And also there's your book, which is Lobbying for Change. Do you want to go a little bit into that also? Absolutely. I would be happy to unpack very briefly uh, the methodology that we develop that allow any citizen, any movement, any NGO, any civil society organization to set up an advocacy campaign exactly in the same way organized interests do. Uh, so there are 10 steps that I develop over time that I often practice and, and, and educate and train and share is really open access. Everybody can use them. And the basic idea of the 10 steps is that each of us should at some point devote some time about the issues they deeply care about. So one example uh, might be LGBT, another one uh, might be uh, animal rights, another one might be climate change. So how can we translate our desire to make a difference into something concrete? And if you think about it, most of the times we do a like, we share a post, we might even sign up for a petition, but we don't really often ask what happens after I like a post or after I sign up for a petition. Very few people do, right? So this is basically the starting point of my work uh, at the Good Lobby and of my own book. So how can we translate our desire for change into something more tangible? And these 10 steps basically tell you, number one, you should pick up a battle. Uh, so you should pick uh, an issue that you really care about. And then step two, do your homework. So start doing some research, connecting the dots among organizations, citizens who care about the same issue. 
And then once you've done so, you might also do a stakeholder mapping. And that basically means you're going to map out the actors who are active in that particular sector. They can be NGO, influencers, companies, countries, cities, influencers on Instagram, anybody who might be affected by the policy proposal, policy solution you might have. And once you've done so, you might actually develop an advocacy strategy. So you might decide to actually go political by uh, launching a petition or meeting a political representative. You might want to go administrative by lodging a complaint to your city, to uh, the ombudsman or, you know, any kind of administrative organization. You might also uh, go legislative by asking for a policy change. Uh, you might go, um, let's say, uh, expose the campaigning side. So start talking and raising awareness about your issue so that you can put it on the map. And then once you've done so, you can actually build a coalition of actors uh, around your, your stakeholder mapping. You won't be going alone. And that's the beauty of technology today that allows you at very low cost to actually meet like-minded individuals and connecting the dots, building coalitions, and finally transform this into a meeting with the policymakers and into some action and then monitoring uh, what you're doing by getting some funding from philanthropy or crowdfunding from people who believe that you are on the right track. And then finally, keep monitoring and never give up being persistent on your, on your, on your achievement and in particular being persistent and having stamina in relation to your goals. So over the years, we've been assisting uh, hundreds of uh, citizen uh, campaigns, uh, what I call citizen lobbyists, uh, who have really made an impact in setting the agenda for political leaders um, at different levels of government and really making a difference for, for themselves as well. The book is Lobbying for Change, Find Your Voice to Create a Better Society. I'm going to put the link on the show notes for people to get familiar with these 10 steps. And uh, Alberto, as we are coming to the end of our time together today, but I'm going to ask you to come back because you opened the avenue for so many topics that I would like to explore with you. But let us know what are the main uh, concerns for 2021. When we're talking about good lobbying, when we're talking about all the work that we have to do for these reforms to have a more inclusive, more democratic, more of a connection. Tell us what are the things that uh, your mind will be occupied during 2021? Well, there's so much uh, going on and we are uh, going through extraordinary times, right? We all feel that we are moving to a new world, into a new epoch. Probably that epoch has already started, uh, is what Antonio Gramsci used to call the interregnum, right? So we see that uh, an epoch is ending, but the new one hasn't started yet. So we are right in between. And this is the same for the good lobby, for my organization, my community, we are expanding. We are working with more in citizen movements. We've also some progressive companies, big corporations at the moment. We see a lot of opportunities to actually shape the policy process. And also, we don't want to miss those opportunities, right? There are more awareness that we need to change the status quo. The status quo is not viable. How to make this happen, obviously, is the big question. But certainly, citizens have a role to play into it. From an institutional perspective, in 2021, a conference on the future of Europe will be started from the EU, which would be a major listening exercise. Our expectations are quite limited. We don't really think that this conference will make a huge difference. Unfortunately, it has been uh, very much designed from the top down, very little participation. 
it would be a major, let's say, attempt at listening what citizens expect from Europe. That's a positive side. So we would like to be part of it. But there's one specific issue I would like to uh, flag for those who are listening to us. And this has been one of my obsessions over the last few years. The fact that in Europe, after 70 years, you have more than 20 million citizens who actually live in a different country than the country in which they were born. So this is almost 4% of the population. It might look tiny when you compare it to the US, where 20% of the population live in a different state, but still 20 million is a big, big figure. And when you look at those, and I belong to that category, like probably many people are listening to us today, you realize that more than 90% of those actually never vote. They don't vote for the European elections, they don't vote for municipal elections. And obviously, they, they cannot vote at the national elections because they are not citizens of that country. So I'm Italian. I work in France. I live in Spain. And in Spain, I don't actually vote because it's very complicated for me to vote, right? Even if I'm very aware and kind of walk on my political rights, it's so complicated to vote at the elections that very often time I miss the deadline to register, which is required of me. So there are so many obstacles to exercise my political rights that only 8% of act actually do vote. And that's the reason why uh, last year I decided to build a movement which is called Voters Without Borders. I published an op-ed in The Guardian and then a, a group of young citizens, they are mostly uh, Erasmus students, set up this European citizen initiative. And we are collecting one million signature in order to ask the EU to do more in order to ensure each European citizens to be entitled to vote, regardless of where he lives or she lives. Uh, at the end of the day, each of us is contributing by paying taxes to the country in which we live. We also contribute to the country where we come from. We are probably the most tangible expression of the success of Europe. But paradoxically, we are the least politically representative. We don't really see who we should vote for, in particular in Europe, because the candidates that are presented to us are either very national, the country where we come from, or very national, the country where we reside. So voting for the Italians or voting for the Spaniards doesn't mean that I can vote a candidate who is, you know, European enough to understand what are the challenges I face as a European citizens who regularly cross borders and who ask bits and pieces of the family. And you know what? The most important element to highlight is to defy this conventional wisdom according to which we, the 20 million, we would be uh, elite. We would be bankers, you know, journalists, uh, very wealthy individuals. Most of us do have blue collar work. You know, they are not white collar mm -hmm. works, but this is not the perception. There are many more Portuguese or Italian bartenders in London or in Berlin than there are bankers or students. But we just don't see that mm -hmm. reality. So this is an important campaign to realize how diverse Europe has become, how socioeconomic independent, but how politically little representatives Europe is. And we really close or square the circle from where our conversation started. This incredible gap between the European experience of life, which is so diverse and so rich and with such an incredible potential, and the very, uh, I would say, short-sighted, very tiny, very uh, inward-looking national experience given by our political system. And, and Europe has to somehow, you know, transcend the nation state in order to realize itself and to give everyone 
these incredible political opportunities we all have, you know, to travel abroad, to meet our partner, uh, to potentially realize ourselves be beyond the place where we were born. Another reason to have you back on the podcast, because the Conference of Europe and this political rights for Europeans, just that would be another two hour conversation. For now, I'm going to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and to coming to the podcast. And I hope to have you back soon. Thanks you so much to you, to the Libra Europe podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And if you like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>